often don't match up with the ones we find in feed. And we often find, uh, we struggle to find salmonella in feed quite often. Um, it doesn't mean that feed's not important, and I want to explore some of the challenges we face when we're actually looking for, um, when we're looking for salmonella in feed. Just get this one to work. So, just a quick word about Anitox. Um, we're focused on efficient production of safe feed, and that includes controlling Salmonella, Clostridia, uh, E. coli, mould, etc. And in the 15 years I've been with Anitox, um, viruses, feedborne viruses, have become much more important. Uh, if we look, we know that feed is a fomite. Um, and I've ringed in red the ones that we typically look for in feed, uh, but all of these ones uh, can be carried in feed. And then, as I say, viruses have become a, a much bigger issue. And we can see why. This, this, this is uh, one of those um, uh, seminal moments when you see a picture like this. This was actually taken in the States. Uh, that's maize, corn. Um, and these are migrating birds which have landed on the corn. And is there any wonder we get salmonella spreading uh, and various other pathogens when that kind of thing can happen? Um, we know salmonella is a zoonosis, so it can affect animals, can affect people. Um, prior to 1971, no case of salmonella agona had been recorded in humans in the US. And they actually tracked the salmonella that, that caused those outbreaks in 1971, they tracked it back to a delivery of um, contaminated fish meal from Peru, actually, that had arrived in the country in 1969. So do, do in-feed pathogens affect poultry? Well, yes, they do. Uh, there's plenty of work showing that the uh, salmonella that's found in feed is later found in meat, it's found in birds, uh, found in eggs, uh, including in, in, and found in turkeys as well. Why do we need to control pathogens? If you get uh, pathogens in your uh, feed mill, you can then spread those right across all the mills, all, all the farms the mill's supplying. And if the mill's supplying uh, GP flocks, etc., you can end up with pathogens coming in from two different angles. So there are four keys to salmonella detection in feed. The scale, how many samples you're taking, the protocol, sample management, subsampling, and then analysis. And I'm going to start off and, and cover each of these, but there's, there's uh, room for error in each of these, each of these uh, segments. So the level of salmonella in feed uh, and ingredients is extremely low, typically 2 to 4 CFUs per 100 gram. And salmonella in feed is not evenly spread. So if you, if you were to actually take 100 salmonella <coughs> colonies, put them in a ton of feed, spread evenly, and then grab one 25 gram sample, you'd have a one in 400 chance of finding uh, one of those 100 uh, colonies. The problem is, or another problem is, it's unevenly spread. So you tend to find hot spots. So you can easily see why you can take four samples from a 27-ton load and you find nothing at all. Um, one of the ways of overcoming this is to take lots of samples. It's very expensive, but it is one way to try and get around the problem. Uh, when AFA, that's the Animal Plant Health Agency, that's a government body in the UK, uh, 
when they visit a mill and they're wanting to look for salmonella, they will collect between 350 and 400 odd samples in a day from all over that, all over that mill. And I've split out, this was work published by Davis and Wales in 2010, and I've split them out into intake area, post-intake preload out, so that's in the grinder, the weigher, uh, the mixer, the press, uh, the cooler, and then the loadout area. And you can see on the right-hand side the number of salmonella isolates drops as you progress through the mill, but it doesn't disappear altogether. And in total, you've got around 10.5% positives. But that's when you've taken 400 samples. So if you take four samples, in all likelihood, you're not going to find one. Um, another way of, of solving the problem is to increase sensitivity, and that means starting to look at uh, collecting dust. Uh, if over time in a mill the dust collects, you've, you've got, a, you've got a, a period of time where you can actually look back in time by collecting dust. You need to collect a lot of it, uh, and there's, it takes quite a lot of time to collect a lot of dust because it is so fine. But it's a good way of getting environmental samples, getting a history of what's been going through that mill. Uh, another way is to use large, moist swabs, and this is something AFA will do. They'll use um, 34 by 34 centimetre swabs. Uh, you put them straight into buffered peptone water after you've taken the swab, and you send that off. You've got to get it to the lab within 24 hours to, to try and make sure you're going to identify and, and keep those salmonella alive that you have swabbed. Um, but that's another way, and particularly in areas like lorry wash, um, that's one of the areas they'll visit. They'll, they'll go to the lorry wash, see what's happening there, swabbing in the um, gantry, the outlet gantry, those kind of areas. Coolers um, and the sieves in, in a mill um, are a really good place. The sieve area and the returns auger that takes the fines back to the press if you're pressing. Those are great areas. They're like a five-star hotel for bacteria, those areas and you tend to find a better class of salmonella in those places. So if we move on to um, subsampling, so it's a good idea to take composite samples. So rather than just taking one grab of 350 grams when you're taking a sample, try and take a number of smaller ones, 10, 35 gram sam samples from uh, either a stream or from uh, a, a large lot of, of product is a better way than doing it than just grab one. Um, and then as you send that sample off to the lab, you'll tend to find it settling out. Uh, and what the lab should do is really grind all of that sample up and then homogenize it, make sure it's homogenized, and then take a sample out of that. Um, this, uh, this one looks at, this was work done by Israelson in 97, and he looked at particle size and number of salmonellas recovered. Um, and you can see four, four millimetres and above, um, very few salmonellas found. Uh, when you get down to below one millimetre, you suddenly see this big uh, increase. And it tends to be because the, the dust, if you like, the meal it will, is, is more likely to be moist, provides a better place for the salmonella to survive. Uh, and so talking about grinding feed samples, this is in our lab. Uh, and what we grind every sample, um, and then we homogenize it, uh, we, and then we take the sample out of that. And we need lots of these um, 
containers that go on top of the grinder. So that's on the right-hand side of that picture. You can see all the containers, about 40 of them. And after every sample, it needs cleaning out, disinfecting, rinsing, and drying. And that's what that is, a drying cabinet in there. So there's a lot of work involved. If you're going to do this job properly, there's a lot of work involved to, to get it right. So if we move on to analysis, um, salmonella in feed and ingredients is usually in an injured or stressed state, and it requires resuscitation. So that's why we do a pre-enrichment. It's, it's been desiccated, it's been dried, and that means it gets very stressed, and it's going to take longer to recover. Um, most pre-enrichment media were designed for recovery of salmonella from human foods, and they're not always, not all of them are, are, are the best ones to use when you're trying to uh, recover from uh, stressed salmonella from, from dried feed. Uh, feed and ingredients do pose unique challenges. They, they're quite often a complex matrix, um, and so you've got to kind of cope with that. They might have acids, organic acids added, formic, propionic blends, those kind of things, as mitigants. And those um, mitigants can actually affect the pH when you go into pre-enrichment so they can bring the pH down and that can damage the salmonella and it can inhibit recovery as we'll see in a minute. Um, the level of salmonella, as I said, is extremely low. pH changes in the, in the pre-enrichment media can occur due to competing bacteria and the composition of those ingredients. And here we see uh, a matrix of different types of broiler feed or turkey feed, uh, some layer in there, and then four different pre-enrichment medias. So we've got lactose broth, buffered peptone water, M9, uh, and universal pre-enrichment broth. And you can see there's a variation in the pH depending on which pre-enrichment has been used and which diet has been used. So these are the kind of things we're trying to, trying to cope with. Um, exposing salmonella to low pH can result in cell injury and, and the death of the salmonella. Some salmonella produce hydrogen sulfide as a metabolite when they're grown on certain selective agars. And if you have a drop in the pH in your pre-enrichment media, that can slow or stop the production of these uh, H2S colonies. So they don't turn black. Now that top um, the top agar uh, on the, on the right-hand side, those are black salmonella isolates, and they're easy to see. Uh, th that's, that's gone really well. The bottom one, they're also salmonella um, isolates. They're also on XLD growth medium, but they haven't gone black, and that's because the pre-enrichment pH had dropped. It had killed some of the salmonella, and it stopped the others from producing hydrogen sulfide. So... The lab technician, if they're not aware of this, they can look at that and think, well, I've got some growth, but it's not, it's not salmonella. So these are the kind of things we need to be thinking of. We always need to be trying to bring, make sure our pre-enrichment broth pH is up at around seven. Uh, and here you can see different salmonella cope with acid uh, exposure to a different level. So typhimurium is better able to cope with uh, acid uh, exposure than, for instance, Infantis and Heidelberg. Um, you don't need a big drop in the pH to actually interfere with the assay results. Um, 
Now, if, you, if, you, if you're struggling, if you're finding that your pre-enrichment broths are always getting acidic, uh, you can use something like sodium hydroxide, try and make sure you bring it back up or keep it up at, at seven. But it's, if you're not doing this, in, if you're in labs and you're not keeping an eye on your pre-enrichment broth, it's a good idea to do that, just to see, well, what is the, what's the pH? Um, this is Salmonella uh, Seffenberg, and when, uh, acid, when, when these Salmonella um, cerevars get stressed, it can change their tolerance uh, to acid, for instance. And in here you can see that um, Seffenberg taken from a bird or taken from feed because it was dried, it was stressed, it has a completely different tolerance to acid. Uh, so. You, these kind of changes, these are the ones that we're trying to screen out when we're doing our testing. Uh, and then you get more variability depending on well, which pre-enrichment media do you use, which enrichment media. And each of these feed samples, there were five different um, sera, sera groups. Um, typhi A was typhi, B was typhimurium, C was um, uh, Montevideo. Uh, D was Enteroididus and E was Seftenberg. They were each uh, inoculated with the same amount of Salmonella. So ideally the result would be 20, 20, 20, 20, 20, or five 20s all the way across. But you can see different uh, combinations of pre-enrichment and enrichment and different Salmonella respond differently. And the C group is the Montevideo. So what that tells you is that Montevideo recovers quicker from a stress state than the other ones do, which is why we quite often find Montevideo in feed. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't other Salmonella in that feed sample, but the one that recovers quicker populates the agar dish quicker, and then when you select one to send off for serotyping, it's probably that one that you've selected. We use two different agar plates. Most labs will be doing this and you're using two to try and screen out some of these issues, ones that some grow better on some agar than on another. So we use Brilliant Green uh, and XLD agar plates. Now this is another point of variation is which lab have you sent these samples off to? This is from the EURL, so it's the EU reference lab, Salmonella ring test. So the EU send off contaminated salmonella spiked samples of feed to all the national reference labs in the member states and they ask them to record they ask them to follow the same salmonella procedure methodology and record what they've done and these gray areas you can see that's where they deviated from the um, the normal way of doing things of, of following that methodology so, and these are the reference, these are the national reference labs they've gone to, and you can see the variation there from labs all using the same methodology, but actually not quite doing it all the same. Uh, and on this particular example, this was done in 2018, and I think they were going to do another, but then COVID got in the way. I'm not sure if there's another one been done since yet. But this one, they used Salmonella mandaca, and they, spiked, they gave them two different spike levels, a high, high level of salmonella, low level, and 50% of the, uh, the, the labs identified 50% of the high level ones, so that means they missed 50% of the contaminated um, uh, ones, uh, samples. And then where they put a low contamination spike in, 
the labs identified 5%, so they'd missed 95%. Now, I spoke to Rob Davis um, sometime after this, probably in 2019, I think I spoke to him saying, what happened here? And at the time, he wasn't sure. It was one of the things they were looking to try and solve. Unfortunately, Rob's retired, which is a loss to the, the salmonella world. But um, it just shows the kind of thing that can happen when you're trying to look for something. Uh, if you're not, things can go a, a little bit awry. So I was talking earlier about you, you get your salmonella plate, you found some salmonella, and you pick one of those isolates to send off for serotyping. But how do we know whether the, if there are any more there? It's expensive to start sending off lots of, sal uh, lots of different um, is um, isolates. Well, this was work done, uh, published in 22 by Chariot et al. And this group in the States, what they did is they, they got hold of 50 positive samples of raw materials or feed. And they, they, they did the pre-enrichment. They'd already got them as positive samples, but they, they took another 25 gram of each pre-enrichment, enrichment. And then they ran those through CRISPR, uh, CRISPR seroseq, which is... Um, an involvement of uh, gene editing, and it's, it's just a, a modification to CRISPR, which can identify which salmonella are in a sample. And so what they found in blood meal, there was one sample of blood meal. That sample had 11 different serotypes. And this um, pie chart on the right, the color red shows the one that was, had grown the most in that sample. And that was um, Montevideo. So that one had grown the most, but then, and that's, when you've done your, when you send your isolate off, you probably get back, oh, I've got Montevideo, and you think, well, I haven't got any more. Well, in fact, there, are, there were 10 others, and they included Infantis, Typhimurium, um, Enterididis, Reading, Kentucky, Seftenberg, I think was in there, we'll see on the next slide, actually. But that's, that's what can happen. Now, I know we're not using blood meal in Europe, but we've got soybean meal in there, which the average of the samples of soybean that they analysed had 1.3. So some had more than one, and some only had one. Turkey feed, you, your eyes might have been drawn to that one. There were two samples of turkey feed, each with one salmonella. One was Cubana, the other was Seftenberg. That doesn't mean that the next time this exercise was done, there wouldn't be two or three in some turkey feed. Um, and here you can see which, all of the different ones, and the, the more red the colour means that that's the one that's proliferated. So on the blood meal you can see that Montevideo was the one that was first found, but then you can see there are ten others in there, and that includes Typhimurium, Infantis and Enterididis that were in that one. And the same thing happened, we had a, a number in, um, not surprisingly, feather meal, meat and bone meal, uh, fish meal also had a number, but then poultry feed, pig feed, um, soya bean meal. And these were, these were collected from 10 countries around the world, which included Poland and Israel. So not all these countries are using meat and bone meal. Um, as we say, we've got soy meal in there. But this really brings home the, the fact that we don't actually know enough about well, what salmonella are in our samples when we're getting them. That just is a, a close-up of the um, uh, looking at the blood meal at the top of the blood meal there. So we have to be careful 
and methodical when sampling and when subsampling, and we've got to use the appropriate methods to help us find Salmonella cerevars, but it is easy to miss some. Uh, people get sick, the processor says, well, we didn't find that particular serotype. Uh, the farmer says, we didn't see it, and the feed millers might be saying, well, we didn't see that one. Um, but new technologies can identify multiple serovars in a sample by looking at genetic information present. I'm not suggesting that everyone starts saying, oh, we need to do CRISPR analysis. If, if you find a salmonella, you want to get rid of it. You might not be that bothered by what the serovar is, but you, you're going to have to take action. Where I see this uh, finding a home is on, particularly on large integrated businesses who might have uh, some form of an issue and they're desperately trying to track back, well, where's this come from? And they keep drawing a blank with feed and they might be keep drawing a blank in other areas. But with some of these new technologies, I think we're, we're on the way to be able to track this down a bit better. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Um, I suppose one message is that, in fact, the actual incidence in feed is pretty low. Yes. But, uh, Yes, no, uh, you're right, and that's, I meant to say that at the beginning, the, the, um, the poultry industry has done a great job at reducing salmonella level, levels in birds and in feed and in, uh, in the processing plants, particularly in Europe they have, not perhaps so much in some other parts of the world, but in Europe, through the national control program, through vaccination, etc., they've done a great job. Thank you. Any more questions for Simon, please? It's not that cheap. Um, I don't, it's not prohibitively expensive. If, you, if you're a large integrator, I don't think you, you wouldn't have a problem spending the money. I, I don't, don't want to commit to a price because right now I'm not sure what it, it'll probably come down since we did this kind of work. Okay. Right. Thank you very Thank much, you. Simon. Thank you.